Hi, everyone. My name is Kathy English, and I'm chair of the, the Canadian Journalism Foundation. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this Canadian Journalism Foundation JTalks live event. If you enjoy these talks and would like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Indigenous people of the lands that we are on today. While we meet on a virtual platform, we would like to take a moment to recognize the importance of the land that each of us call home. The Canadian Journalism Foundation's office is situated on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And we are privileged to live and work in these territories. The CJF is grateful to our exclusive JTOC sponsors, TD Bank Group, for making these conversations about the future of journalism possible. We also thank our in-kind supporter, Cision. Speaking of, of the future of journalism, our next JTOC Live event is April 11th at 1 p.m. This will bring together a global panel of experts to examine the editorial and ethical considerations around AI in journalism. You can register for that event through the CJF's website. A reminder that our discussion today is one hour long and you can send in your questions at any time using the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about this conversation, and we hope you will, our hashtag is CJFJTalks. Another hashtag the CJF often uses is Journalism Matters. We believe this wholeheartedly, and I think most of you joining us today believe that too. We know that our work, fact-based reporting of information that people need, is not only relevant, but also essentially for, essential for a healthy democracy. We also know that journalists don't always succeed at getting this information to the audiences who need it. And so I'm delighted to introduce our panel of experts. The group we welcome today represents thought leaders in connecting and building relations with new and underserved communities, whether under the umbrella of legacy media outlets or as newcomers in the online news communities. They bring a range of perspectives and a wealth of experience to an important topic for news outlets of all sizes and to all journalists who care about their work. Joining us from Axios, please welcome Priyanka Bora, Director of Audience. From the Washington Post, Phoebe Connolly, Director of Next Generation Audience Development. And from LWC Studios, Julika Lantigua, the founder and CEO of LWC Studios. They'll be in discussion with Rebecca Zayman, Audience Growth Manager at the Globe and Mail. It is an honor and a privilege to have this panel with us today. I thank you all for your time, your expertise, and for your passion for journalism. Rebecca, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy. Uh, I am so excited to be here today with three absolute leaders in journalism and in the audience space. And I uh, intend to make this session a bit of a learning, obviously, about the topic at hand, but also a bit of a talk about audience work and what that means, because it is a new entry into the journalism world, into traditional newsrooms, and also into spaces where we're creating our own projects, such as Jaleka. Uh, 
I'm thrilled to have the three of you talk to me today. And I want to start with how you got here in your career and what you do at your organization. For many newsrooms, it's also new. So I'm going to start with Priyanka. Hello. Hey. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to share whatever little I know about audience space and whatever uh, the audience can help us understand about how we should be serving the readers here and everywhere globally. Uh, my name is Priyanka Bora. My pronouns are she, her. I am the director of audience at Axios, and it means a lot of things uh, in the organization. Uh, I think of my work as like in three buckets. One is making sure we are reaching our new audiences and always innovating and thinking of the platforms where we should be and where we meet our audiences. There's a lot around technology and how we evangelize technology within the newsroom and outside the newsroom. Uh, and the third is working with aggregators and platforms and partners and seeing how innovation is happening outside the journalism sphere so we can advance the work that we're doing internally at our organization. To your question about how I got here, it's a very, very unorthodox uh, journey for me. I started for, uh, as a local reporter in Bombay, Mumbai, India, where I was just reporting for a newspaper and my life was all about my beat and I was day in and day out uh, trying to get the best story and trying to get the best story on the front page of the newspaper I was working for. And I developed expertise in the field I was reporting on. I was reporting on public health, medicine, science, and getting topical expertise. And But I was a little challenged. I was like, does this make sense? I'm writing all these stories, and I'm winning awards for these stories. I'm getting acknowledgement and from peers in the industry, but I am not getting any feedback from my readers, from the people who I actually want to serve with the journalism that I'm producing. And that got me thinking, a lot of researching, did a bunch of fellowships to get some clarity on what does the audience space mean, got a master's, uh, tried to figure out how we can do audience, audience research, community reporting, and all these very different skills the sets that I built over the past few years landed me into this role and I still don't know what's the next role for me and that's because it's not written we don't know what the next space or the phase of audience is going to be but we are here to carve it out and I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much Priyanka that's wonderful. Jalika speaking of carving out a space please tell us about your organization and how you got started with it. Sure. First, thank you so much for organizing uh, this and for having us here. It's been already a learning experience being on prep calls with you all. Um, how did I get here? Well, the short of it is that I fell in love with and consequently eloped with podcasting. So left traditional journalism for the new hottie on the media block and have not regretted it. And so... <laughs> <laughs> That's the short of it. I had spent 18 years of a really wonderful and fulfilling media career that started in a small magazine called Urban Latino in New York City, started by 
three Colombian dudes that were like, where's the stuff about our people? And they recruited me to come in and be managing editor. And that was just a very fancy title because on any day I was, you know, picking up lunch, stuffing envelopes, you know, editing or writing the cover story. It all depended on the day. But I learned the chops of, you know, real you know, nose to the ground journalism um, there. And then I've had basically every job in media uh, since. And the last two were as editor um, and staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine. And after that, right before I started my company as the head of Code Switch at NPR headquarters in DC. And what happened was a little bit of a reckoning and a little bit of a disillusionment. So I had spent 18 years climbing the proverbial media ladder only to land at the place that decides what is news and still be asking for permission to tell stories that I thought were important. And those are stories about the rising majority of this country. And so after a while of doing that, I thought, well, maybe I need to be the change I need to see in the world, right? And took out a $40,000 loan for my own 401k, enlisted to be a Lyft driver. And here we are six years later, and now we are Peabody nominated. We won an Ambi. We've won the top prize at the third coast um, with 70 million. And so we are erasing the margins with the storytelling and the storytellers that we deploy. Incredible. Congratulations on the nomination. Um, Phoebe. Can you tell us a bit about what you do at the Washington Post and your journey to get there? I believe you are still new. Apologies. Um, thank you so much for having me. I want to agree with everyone thus far that it's just been a pleasure to gather together and talk about our jobs and how we got here. Um, I'm the director of the Next Generation Audience Initiative at the Washington Post. We are a new team. We were formed about two years ago, um, and we're a new type of team. It's it's a cross-functional team. So my team has product managers, um, marketers, folks from the subscription side, editors, um, audience strategists, and together we work across the company to help set strategies, drive strategies, foster innovation around how we reach younger and more diverse audiences. Um, it's been a real learning curve and a really fun job because we know what our mission is, right? That's sort of written out. We've got this nice press release that went out, but we also had to work within the company to figure out, okay, how does a cross-functional team work? And how do we make connections with all of these departments? And how do we help accelerate change without getting underfoot or getting in the way of the, the really strong leadership that already exists across a lot of these departments? Um, and I'm excited to share some of the ways we've done that. But as for how I got here, uh, similar to Priyanka, I also worked as a reporter, as an editor. Um, I also helped the title managing editor, which involved everything from like grabbing, you know, prints off of proofs and sending them, walking them over to a copy desk, very old school. Um, but uh, I think that what really has driven all of my career is a willingness to just accept the opportunity to learn a new job. About 12 years ago, I was at Yahoo News as an editor, and my boss was David Chalian, who was the bureau chief. He's now at CNN. And he said, I really need a producer to help run our election coverage. I know you don't have a video background, but can I train you? And I said, yes, absolutely. I will take training. Um, and that's how I got into the world of video. And a few years later, I was hired by the Washington Post. Um, I worked across the Washington Post breaking news, um, 
short form video, uh, every platform that has introduced a video form, we organized something for. Um, but I was also given the opportunity to work with the product side really closely. And I helped build our back end. I helped build multiple versions of our video player, which gave me a real strong grounding in product, um, which is what led, I believe, to the opportunity that I have now, because I have that odd mixed background that no resume or college course ever could have planned me for. Absolutely. I've heard um, audience people referred to as platypuses and uh, people who are sort of jack or jills of all trades. Um, and definitely to your point about what happens within an organization, so much of it is working within the structures that exist and talking to the newsroom, talking to different departments um, and getting them on board with what audience work really looks like. Uh, so I was wondering if I could ask you, how do your organizations define your audience? How did you go about saying from the get-go, this is who we are talking to, this is who we are for? And I realize with Axios um, and with Washington Post, that's a wide swath, but um, I'm going to start with Jalega because you mentioned in our conversations leading up to this, speaking to an audience of one, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about what that means. Things. I love talking about this uh, because I think it's a really radical approach. It's a departure from how most institutions think about audience. And it's also the privilege of being small but mighty that we can really do things that other people can't do with as much uh, flexibility. So yes, we do everything on the originals side for one single listener. And if you go to lwcstudios.com, you will literally see a picture of her. <laughs> it's been there for six years of our existence and it will probably remain there for forever because she is our North Star. And her name is Kenya. Kenya is an Afro-Latina. She is the first gen daughter of two Afro-Latino immigrants. She started with us as a listener when she was 26, when we launched Latina to Latina to inspire her with the stories of other Latinas. She is the first to go to college. She is the oldest of three siblings. So lots of responsibilities as the oldest daughter uh, in an immigrant multi-generational household. She is now 31. She just got married married. She's thinking about starting a family. She's also now in a managerial role. And she's still extremely connected to her very intimate circle of friends, you know, the people in the group chat uh, who help her make all of the big decisions in her life, who she goes on vacation with, who she's the godmother to their children. And she is what people are calling part of the 200 percenters. So these are people who are 100% American and 100% something else. So they are bilingual, bilingual, cultural, they really straddle these two beautiful uh, existences. And much more today than in any other generation, the U.S. is really becoming a country of 200 percenters. Yesterday, I blew my team's mind when I told them that the U.S. is the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. They were just like, wait, what? Make, make that make sense. And I said, no, that's a fact. We are the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. We have over 50 million Spanish speakers. The second to that is Spain with 28 million, right? And, and to interrupt for one sec, Jaleka, for our Canadian audience members to say that I don't have any stats handy, but... I can say with some confidence that certainly there are plenty of 200 percenters in Canada as well. Oh, 100 uh, percent. It's called Toronto um, and Quebec. <laughs> Uh, oh, absolutely. No, no, no. You guys are very similar to us in that regard. It's just that you guys, I, I think, are 
better at not saying, well, this is a big deal because it really shouldn't be a big deal. This is totally normal. This is what is next for our countries, given what we did in the last 200 years. And so nobody's surprised. Um, so anyways, back to Kenya. So when we are, I know this is, oh, the tangents, the tangents could give, have tangent babies, honestly. Um, Kenya is when we are thinking about, wouldn't it be great to make a show? We ask two questions. And the first question is, will Kenya listen to the show? And again, I'm talking about on the original side, which constitutes about 10% of our business. 90% of our business is as a B2B where we make shows for clients. And so if the, if the first answer is yes, she will listen to the show, great. The second question is, will she share it? And if the second answer to will she share it is also a yes, then we pilot, right? And it's really interesting because sometimes we get a yes and we get a no. And so, for example, we do this wonderful show called Feeling My Flow, which is about menstruation as a catalyst for tweens. Clearly, she's not a tween, right? But she's got tweens, and her friends have children, and she's also a mentor in a mentoring program. And so we know that if we create that show, when we decided to create that show, we knew that she would share it. And so this is how, although we are targeting an audience of one, we're able to think far beyond what that single listener is to just being in her orbit, right? So the, the goal of having a singular listener is to really reach all of the people who are in her contacts, and using her to be the conduit to reaching everybody in their contact, and especially in that group chat. That group chat is everything. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Julika. And thank you also for mentioning sort of the business side of things, too. I think it's always, you know, we do tend to think so much about editorial and what that looks like. But when you're starting a business, when you're looking at an audience, that is a huge, huge portion of what you're doing. Uh, Priyanka, I'm going to turn to you next and ask you a bit about Axios and its smart brevity copyright um, <laughs> program, or I'm not sure if you refer to it as a program, um, and explain a bit about what that is and how Axios has sort of taken that idea and applied it to speaking to new audiences and new I can try doing that. I would definitely get Mike Allen to talk about it because he's so good at it, but I'm going to try my best. Um, Smart brevity is a way we communicate with our audiences. We know our audiences have very little attention span. They have very little time in their day, but they're also smart professionals. They already have a, some understanding of the subject that we're writing on. And we also have reporters and writers who are subject matter expertise. So we're meeting our audiences not at the beginning of the story, somewhere in the middle of it. Like they know that the Fed is going to change rates or is the Fed going to pause the rates? They are thinking about it. And when our newsletter hits their inboxes, they get the information they're most likely to search for or most likely waiting for. And like what Juleka just said, it's very similar to that, like the shareability of the information that we produce at Axios and plugging the information gap. That's all smart brevity. I know it's a great way of telling the reader why a story matters is just not super helpful to the reader, but it's also helpful to the reporters and writers who conceive the stories. And why are we telling the stories to our reader? Is this worthy of the attention? Is it worthy of their time? And if yes, then we should write that story. And where would we meet them in their information ecosystem is very important. And I think we can talk about this in jargons. We 
the audience people tend to start thinking about the ecosystem and the space, but the reporters are also thinking about it, but just a little differently. So that's what I would think the smart brevity component of um, writing and the new storytelling format comes, but also defining the audience. Uh, I would zoom out a little bit and zoom out as an axiom we use in our smart brevity. So every time you meet an axiom, you will see us using axioms, which are the way we present the great journalism that my reporters are writing. Um, talking about audiences, I was at the Financial Times and I did something very similar, a research on how they share the newsletters. And that was very important and very critical for the reporters and editors to know how their audiences consume the information they're writing. So it's defining the audience and also redefining it because in the product life cycle of newsletters or a website or a podcast, things are going to change. Reader habits are going to change. Listener habits are going to change. So I love the idea of defining the audience, but I also love the idea of revisiting it and redefining the audience when the need be. Wonderful. Thank you, Priyanka. And Phoebe, you mentioned uh, in our prior conversations that the way that Washington Post defines a younger audience is under 45. Am I, am I accurate in that? Perfect. Can you tell us a bit about how the Washington Post went about deciding what their new audiences would be and how they are approaching them? Yeah. So when NextGen got started, we knew that our mission was to um, drive strategy and acquisition of younger and more diverse audiences. And the place to start any strategy is what data do you have around this? And we looked first at age because that was something we had data about, right? We had some existing in our system and we knew that we could get more data around it. Um, and actually this year we're, we're picking up the more diverse audiences question, which I'd love to talk about as well. So we started with that. We also looked at sort of the demographics of the United States, which is sort of our first audience, but certainly not our last, right? We also have a growing international audience as well. Um, and we looked at who our existing readers were, we looked at the studies that had been done, um, and we also looked at how we were measuring them. And ultimately, being able to break them into 10-year increments allowed us to tell a picture of what that growth looked like. Um, and we also then turned to research. Um, I have on my team a UX researcher who leads, she's done three huge studies of all of our three groups. Um, we joke that we offended everybody by taking the oldest millennials and the youngest Gen Xers, and those are super millennials, that's the term of art inside the post, which is 35 to 45 year olds. Um, millennial is 25 to 35 to the post. And then um, Gen Z is 18 to 25. We cut off at 18 for payment and privacy reasons. Um, and, and as we share out the profiles and the research that we've done, we're always keen to make sure that we're not just sharing our own research, but all of the other types of research. So some of it is data that we actually have about how these audiences interact with our stories. Other things are just looking at the wealth of research that is out there. Um, the Reuters Institute has put out a lot of great studies, um, you know. I always love to look at research that's outside of journalism, because the truth is our competitors are not just other journalism organizations, there are other places that our audiences spend their time. Um, and doing that, we then take it to desks and to groups and we say, we, you don't have to 
to choose forever. But we would really like you when you're deciding to start a new strategy or launch a new product to pick one audience that is your primary audience for this. I love, Jalika, that you've narrowed it down to one person. We're still fighting the good fight of like, just pick one audience. Because I, I think that something that I've encountered at the Post, and I think is prevalent across journalism, is there's a real sense of, well, everyone should want to consume. Yes, everyone should want to, but you're going to be most successful if you are really, really clear about who your audience is and why they are coming to you for this story. Write for them, write for their needs, write for why it's relevant to their community. I'm saying write. I also mean record. I also mean get on camera. I mean, all of these things. Um, I'm perhaps showing my background that I always default to writing, but um, you have to have that audience in mind because the truth is, they it is going to have appeal beyond that because you have been so laser focused on a single audience. The other thing I'd like to share about how we rolled this out, and I really sweated this, to be honest, this was in the first couple of months that I was in the role and I was asked to speak at our department heads meeting inside the newsroom. And it went back and forth about sort of how I was going to sell my mission to them. And, and I, I landed upon the idea of accountability, which is a word we talk about a lot in journalism, um, particularly anything that has investigative around it. You know, how are we holding power to account? How are we showing the influences of different institutions on our communities? But the other thing that accountability, when we do accountability journalism, it assumes an audience. You can't hold an institution accountable to no one, or I guess you can, but what's the point, right? You need to hold it accountable to your audience. So that core tenet of journalism is built on the idea of an audience that you're telling that story to. And if you don't take the time to define them and understand their needs, you're not going to be successful. Absolutely. And I, I love how much thought and care you have put into each of these sort of segments that you've been talking about. Um, you mentioned wanting to talk about uh, diverse audiences that Washington Post was speaking to. Do you want to go into that and talk a bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I started that piece of it by both talking to my team and just having conversations around the newsroom. The Post, like a lot of newsrooms, has people who care about these questions long before my task force was set up or, you know, your audience job was hired. So it, it always behooves us to go and report within our own newsrooms about the knowledge that already exists around there. And um, the, the place that I came to after having a lot of these conversations, and I also took the time to go to a lot of journalism conferences and hear how this is being discussed, is that I actually flipped it. I, when we started looking at age, we were really looking at, um, you know, the demographics of the people. I think that the Post is going to start its conversation around how we um, attract and serve more diverse audiences by looking at our content. Because I, I think that to responsibly ask a community to come to us, we need to say, are we actually reflecting that community in our journalism? So we've undertaken a content audit where we're gonna look at um, you know, an audit of all of our coverage over the course of a year to understand how we're serving communities and understand what are we giving them that would make them want to come and be readers, be registered users and ultimately pay us. Absolutely, that's fantastic. Um, Zuleika, I know that uh, you have strong feelings about how you cannot make your content for you. You are not your audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget sometimes, right? We know our own world so well. 
uh, we're comfortable in them. And obviously we, you know, try to diversify our own worlds, but how can we get into other people's heads? How do we know what other people want? Thank you. I'm going to be the least popular panelist today. Um, <laughs> okay, so let me, for the, for the aspiring journalists in the audience, I don't want to discourage you from making a show that you want to see in the world. Okay, let me very be very clear about that. Because most of the shows that I started making when I started my company were shows that I wanted to see in the world. The difference is that in order for me, for me to make the best show, I needed to separate who I was doing it for. So when I say that you're not your ideal listener, it is because you cannot be both advocate for your ideal listener and your ideal listener, and also be the editor, and also be the executive producer, and also be the writer. Like you can't have that many jobs, right? Even if you're, even if it's your baby. And so what I mean by that is, Figure out who needs this show, right? So when Alicia Menendez and I started Latina to Latina, we decided that Kenya really needed this show because she was a few years out of college. She was still exploring what career path she was going to take most seriously. And she needed inspiration. Alicia and I were 20 years into our media careers. We were not at the same place as our ideal listener. And so once we landed on this is who needs the show, it it is so much easier to make decisions about what should be in the show, right? Who should be in the show? What kind of stories do we want to tell in the show? What industry do we want to cover? What kind of tough questions about identity and belonging do we want to take on in the show? All of that in the service of helping Kenya to be inspired, to find joy in her own professional and personal journey, right? And so when you think about this is a great idea. This is the show that I want to see in the world. Think about who needs this show, right? And then the other thing that I did when I started my company, because I'm just a data nerd, was I quite literally amassed every statistic that I could find on Latina women in the U.S. because I knew that that's who I wanted to serve. And so everything that I could find, I just put in a folder and then I digested all that information. And from that information, I came up with my avatar, which is Kenya, right? And so everything that I told you about her is statistically valid. It is actually statistically true for the average Latina in the U.S., everything that I've told you about her. And I continue to track her, right? Statistically, I continue to track her year over year because now my job is to anticipate what she's going to need in a year, right? And so what am I doing now? I'm thinking about, well, she just got married. She's thinking about starting a family. So I'm already starting to develop a show about parenting as a 200% American, right? Because when she pops out that first kid, probably in a year, my show has to be ready for her, right? I've already done a show about pregnancy. So that's already in the books. She can find that easily. And so focusing on just her needs, because again, she is a statistical aggregation of Latinas in the US, allows me to really be two or three steps ahead of her because we have ways of projecting what's going to be happening based on our age, right? And because I am also Latina, because I have gone through many of those key life experiences already, I can use that experience, right? So this is where I can use my story 
right? Without being the ideal listener, I can use my story, my experiences, the things I have in common with my ideal listener to then do things that anticipate her needs. And that's really where the type of service journalism that we like to do uh, makes the difference. That yes, we want to inform you, but more than anything, we want to empower you to make really good decisions. And when you when you work from that premise, anything is possible. Wonderful. Thank you, Joyka. That's so great. And I also, again, love that you talked about the statistics and the data and just really diving into it in such a big way. Often we have so many numbers that are thrown at us um, in our work. And the only way to read them, I've always found, is to just keep reading them until they make sense, until they tell you a story in some capacity. Priyanka, uh, you had mentioned that when you were doing audience work, you want to make sure that everyone in the newsroom is involved. And I was hoping you could explain a bit about what that looks like sort of across the different structures. So from everyone from reporters to editors uh, to assignment editors to the editor-in-chief, all of all of the people on that masthead, what does that look like? It's tough. The buy-in is difficult, but we make it happen. The I think the most important thing when evangelizing audience work across the newsroom is to be the audience, to talk about why you like the story and why you how you could have improved the story. So I have, we do the structural thing of setting, sending out reports, making sure we have the statistics in place and we're talking about personas and we're getting in front of the newsroom and talking about what story did well, what didn't. But it's also very critical for us to sit one-on-one with reporters and editors constantly talking about what are the information gaps? What are people like? One of the things that I focus a lot on is SEO. And I hate the word SEO because I'm not really an SEO guru or I'm not like a search evangelist in the newsroom, but I am actually an audience evangelist. I'm just telling my reporters and editors that this is what people are searching. If people want to know what who is TikTok's CEO, we should tell them. And that's the information they're hungry for. So let's give it to them. And that's extremely important. So on a daily basis, making sure that you are communicating to the right people within the newsroom. And it does not always have to be the decision makers. I sometimes feel that it's much more easier to sit down with the reporter and work with them on their copy. And I've done that multiple times, not at the, not only in my role at the, at Axios, but also at Quads, at the FT, and every reporter, every editor will ask you such smart, intelligent questions, which will make you think of the next training that you need to con- uh, conceive and build that presentation because those are the information gaps and those are the, inf- this, the skills that are missing in the newsroom. And you can only find out if you do the audience research or within the newsroom. So that's my strategy across any newsrooms that I've worked thus far. That's great, thank you. And it's true, I think you find when you talk to different reporters and editors, they have their own sort of person in mind who they're writing for. And it's really illustrative to take a look at, to get a chance to hear about that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something Jaleika touched on, but I'm gonna direct it at you, Phoebe. So the question is, Um, about authenticity, about making sure that when you are creating content, when you're approaching an audience who, frankly, you have not spoken to before, right? And the reason I'm asking you about this is as a legacy newsroom, um, that's sort of the the history that you're carrying. 
you know, there's entire swaths of populations that have been, I don't want to say ignored, but underserved uh, to the point of this panel um, by large news organizations. So when you recognize that this is the case and try to correct that, how can you do so in a way that it is authentic? It doesn't come across as pandering. It doesn't come across as gross, frankly. I mean, I think the challenge for legacy news organizations is that we have to look at our own organizations. Do our organizations reflect the communities that we are asking to trust us as sources, as people who are coming to their town hall meetings, as people who are you know, coming into a community after a natural disaster? Um, I, it has to start with our own newsrooms. It has to. Um, and and you know, we need to have some tough conversations because that's not just about hiring. It's about career trajectory. It's about training. It's about making sure that people feel valued. It's making sure that when you go around that morning news meeting, who's sitting at the table, whose opinion is called for, who is asked for. Because when you build an organization where, you know, someone from a community that maybe you aren't currently reaching has a chance to build a career, has a chance to pitch ideas. That's how you're going to be able to go to that community and cover them responsibly and ask them to um, listen to you, right? And, and see you as a voice of authority and a voice that they want to trust. So I, we have to start first with our own newsrooms and, and make sure we're taking a hard look at that before we can go to any community. Jaleka, Priyanka, is there anything you wanted to add to the question? I can go. Um, one of the important things that I have thought about, like as a journalist specifically, I would want to talk about that journey because that really reflects into the work that I'm doing as an audience person. And that is, have we spoke, are we speaking to the same people again and again? Like every journalist talks about it a lot and thinks about it. And, but we re really never go out in the community and try to find those new voices or new, or sources that we should be reaching out to and it's a very similar trajectory so when I talk to my editors and my leadership this is how I want to talk about it like it's not just about like as Phoebe said it's not at all about hiring or getting making sure that people uh what the career trajectory is it's also an additional thing about is the journalism that we are producing reflective of the organ of the community that we are trying to serve and that can only happen if we think about it in every step of the story production, it cannot be something that we do every three months and create a report and forget about it. It's something that every reporter has to think about when they pick up the phone or they send out an email to a source. So the more we get it into the process of the work we do, the easier it's going to be. And the more intentional we are in the effort is really critical to get there. Um, I'm just going to very quickly say that I have been part of the diversity conversation for my entire career, and I used to be a foot soldier for diversity and inclusion efforts until I realized that they were a huge scam. And so I just no longer participate in them. I just get, you know, get to the work. What I think part of the problem is that we're still framing this as a moral imperative, it's not a moral imperative. This is an economic imperative. The 62 million Latinos in the US represent the fifth largest economy in the world. So clearly, if you're a news organization that's not targeting Latinos, you just don't like to make money, right? Mm -hmm. Black women are 
the smartest, the most educated women in the country proportionate to their number. They have the much the most PhDs of any group of any population in the United States. Latinas and Black women and Asian women are outpacing everyone in terms of starting businesses. Eight out of 10 business every day launched in the US is launched by a Black woman, an Asian woman, or a Latina woman. Eight out of 10 businesses every single day. So again, if you're not speaking to these women, it's because you don't like money. We already know that when there are more women on company boards, those companies make more money, right? And so for me, this question of whether we have the moral authority, whether we are morally right about this, we're really past that question. We're past the question of, do we want to be relevant and do we want to make money? And I feel like if you're in the media business, you have to make money to be able to do all of the other lofty things that we enjoy doing and that we take pride in doing and that we win awards for doing. But until we recognize that these audiences are actually the financial future of our organizations, we're going to be having this moralistic roundabout conversation that never leads anywhere. Sorry. No need to apologize. Um, I can listen to you talk all day. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, that was really great and really insightful from all three of you. Um, I would, we have about five minutes left before we get to the really great audience questions that have come in. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't speak about platforms. And um, if we're talking to younger audiences, we need to talk about talking to them on in all the different ways we do so. Um, obviously, Washington Post has been at the forefront of a lot of this work from a legacy perspective, you know, being brave enough, frankly, from a large organizational standpoint to dip their toe into TikTok and Reddit when most other organizations did not, would not. Um, Phoebe, do you want to speak to that briefly about uh, what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, I would say overall that when we think about these platforms, again, this goes back to something that I referenced earlier, our audiences are on these platforms, they're using these platforms, and when they come to us, whether it's on a mobile browser within our apps, they're usually switching over from being on a social platform. And so they're going to bring the expectations, they're going to bring the story formats, they're going to bring the pacing of those platforms, and their thought, that's where their brain is before they move to us. So if we don't meet them with the formats that they're expecting with the brevity that they're expecting with the, um, you know, the realness that they're expecting. I, I'm, I'm interrupting myself. This is great. Thank you, Jalinka, for saying we're going to go on tangents. But, you know, I, I feel like sometimes our industry took the wrong message from all of the pivots to video that happened over the past 10 years. Like, was that difficult for a lot of our organizations and funding models? Absolutely. But it also forced us to face a reality, which is that things were changing quite quickly and audience expectations were changing quite quickly. And I, was every bet we made the right one? I, no, as an industry, I think we can agree that we didn't all make the right bets, but we did learn how to move with a lot of speed and meet our audiences where they were at. And, and having, that's the important thing. It's not cracking TikTok. It's not cracking Reddit. It's, do you have a curiosity? Do you have a willingness? Do you have a framework? At the Post, we have a framework that we, you know, share with people who want to pitch working on a new platform. We ask them to think thoughtfully about how it matches up with our mission, what kind of journalism they're going to share on there, what is the tone, 
that creates the template and then we encourage them to go and explore. The, the biggest misconception people have about my role is they're like, oh, do you run the TikTok team? Absolutely not. <laughs> Lauren Sachs and Dave Jorgensen run the TikTok team and they're incredible at it and they don't need my help doing that. The rest of the organization that hasn't already figured out how to unlock that needs my help in figuring out how they can use it as an individual reporter or on a story or how they can correctly pitch the team that's running that platform. Amazing. Uh, thank you. That's, uh, I think it's so true. And, and to the point of um, thinking about who's at the table and who's there, it's also remembering to have people who are, who are curious and looking for these new spaces to play in. Um, Jaleka, anything? Did you want to talk about platforms? I mean, obviously podcasting is its own new platform, kind of. I'm happy to. It's so interesting because my managing editor and I yesterday finished a pitch for ONA and we're really proud of it. And we're like, even if we don't get in, we should do this. And we're calling it how to build a news ecosystem with a podcast. Um, because I like, we, you know, we were like, well, what do we do well? Right. Because you want to pitch something good when you're pitching to ONA. And so, so we were looking at, oh, these are the things that we do well. These are the things that we've consistently done well over the last few years. So as we're listing them, we're like, wait a minute, that's all stuff that newsrooms do separately right? Like different people do all of this stuff separately in a newsroom, but we do it all around one podcast. That's the pitch. Let's talk about how you can build a news ecosystem around podcasts. And so we got really excited. I mean, we have one of our, we have one of our best brainstorming sessions because it was like, oh, duh, this is something that everybody can do, right? And so that's the thing about podcasting, right? Podcasting is so new. I mean, we're in the diaper phase, right? If we were to talk about like children, we're in the diaper phase, right? And so we're like this annoying toddler who just learned to walk, right? And is running and touching everything and grabbing everything and breaking things and drinking out of places that they're not supposed to be drinking out of. But this also makes us the perfect guinea pig for experimenting, right? You can do so much with audio. And then you can do so much if you anchor a multi-platform approach to news. And more importantly, it can be so interactive. So much of the content for three of our shows comes from the CTAs that we do on the shows because we solicit you know, audience responses and audience stories and audience ideas, and we end up using that in the shows. And so we're super excited about continuing to build these ecosystems, these news ecosystems, because what we want to do and everything that we do is nonfiction. We don't do any fiction whatsoever because we just think that fiction pales in comparison to real life, right? And because we're also, you know, thinking about how do we erase the margins by centering people who deserve to be centered, we don't really have time to invent realities. Like there are so many realities that are not getting the coverage that they need. But the fact that this tool, podcasting, is one platform agnostic, you can play a, a podcast anywhere, basically, right? Um, I mean, watch out world when WhatsApp figures out how to play podcasts. It is a wrap when that happens. I mean, seriously, I hope they're really working on that. I've been saying that for three years, hoping that they hear me and they're like, okay, Jaleka, we heard you. We're getting on that. Great for you. That sounds perfect. <laughs> no, right. seriously. In recognizing that we are at uh, audience question time. So I'm going to start just shooting these questions at you. And whoever wants to answer, please shout out. 
Um, a really great one from Rose to start. A lot of news organizations rely on subscriptions or donations from their readers to stay afloat, but cost is often a barrier for younger audiences and underserved audiences from accessing news. How do we reconcile those two things? I would love to talk thought, about it. Been, oh, Phoebe, go no, ahead. No, <laughs> yeah, so at Axios, we... Uh, the main, all the journalism that we have is in front of the paywall. So there are no subs, uh, we have the main national edition, a lot of Axios newsletters, which go out, but we also have an Axios Pro, which is a bis the, the whole concept of the paid model of uh, that part of our business is just to make, is to serve audiences who really need this information and are willing to pay for it. And that does not mean that we are alienating other readers who might not want to might not be interested in paying for this product, but will still get the information through other newsletters and other products we produce. So a multi, we have a multi uh, approach in terms of, we have free models, we have local newsletters, we have contributions and people donate for these newsletters. And then we have Axios Pro, which is a premium paid subscription. So for most news organizations, I. I love the fact that at Axios, we are able to do that. And the more diverse we are in the way we think about the money we can get for producing the great journalism, uh, the better it is. Phoebe, all yours. Oh, I, I would just, I, I, I'm not saying we don't need to grapple with that question, but I think in my experience, we often jump to that question as a way to skip the more critical question, which is, this isn't true across the board, but for, for most news organizations, there's a slice of your content that is outside the paywall or is there's some sort of sampling model that you allow. And I guess I would start the conversation there because I think some organizations are too quick to jump to like, oh, but they aren't paying. I'm like, but are they even sampling? Because you first need to build a habit and you need to make sure that they are, I mean, let's just call out what is happening. There's a lot of people who will evade paywalls, right? They'll clear their cookies. They'll open up a fresh browser. Are young audiences even doing that? Are they trying to get to your content? And, and if that's really happening, then you can engage with the question of like, do we need a lower tier subscription? Absolutely, like go forth. But, but make sure you are coming to that conversation with a strong case about the audience that is doing their, their damnedest to get to sample, to try to, you know, they're, they're loyally listening to your podcasts that are free, right? But they're hitting the paywall in the articles. That's where you can have the conversation about lower price. But I think it's difficult to start with the conversation of lower price. That's great. Um, we have quite a few questions about how to talk to younger audiences, Gen Z, um, what sort of digital and offline strategies might be employed, um, which type of stories are engaging. And then I just have to read this question because I think it's so well phrased. Uh, from Lori, how can we engage younger generations of readers as we hurdle into an increasingly post-literate society? Can the written word stand up to TikTok and Instagram? I would like to take that because Please. I don't agree that we're headed to a post-literate society. Uh, actually, um, today's uh, news consumer reads more than our parents did from way more sources. The thing is that they're not reading. <laughs> they are watching and they are listening. But 
most importantly, they're sharing. So the way that you reach a younger audience is not to give them something to consume. It is to give them something to share. That's the key, right? So we have to think about how we are bundling and packaging the news and our content in ways that incentivizes them to share it. Because the greatest joy is to read something and go, oh my God, my sister's going to love this. Oh my God, my boyfriend's going to love this. And boom, I'm going to share, right? So we have to stop thinking that this is a one-way delivery system, which is what the news has traditionally been. I create it, I put it in front of you, you consume it. This is actually a you know, multi-pronged delivery system, much the same way that I think of Kenya as my principal publicist, which is how I talk about her a lot also, I am creating things that she's going to enjoy and that then she's going to share because her sharing it validates everything that I'm doing. If she doesn't share it, I'm DOA basically. And so, no, I don't think that we're in a post-literate. I think that we're in a post-passive news consumption area. And I think that people want things that they can share. Uh, I love that. I want to steal it. I want to put it on t-shirts, a post-passive society. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, another question from Joseph. Uh, how would you measure success in having an impact on these groups of people in the margins? And so I think that would be speaking to sort of those underserved communities, communities who have otherwise been ignored. Phoebe, you want to go for it? Are they reading you? I think that's the first place that I would measure, right? Like, and, and you know, th there should be a follow-up, right? You should follow up with your communities and find out, like, how, if you spend time doing coverage, how it resonates. I mean, this is moving a little aside from the question, but um, a couple of years ago, um, I worked um as part of a group of people to put together standards of how we handled violent video. This was right at the moment where um, there was a lot of, of video of, um, of shootings that was being released, right? Both mass shootings and police and individuals. And I worked with my colleague, Rhonda Colvin on this. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we came to is that part of responsibly handling video footage goes beyond the video footage. It also means like, do you continue to cover the impact on that community? And, and that's something, that's the piece, right? It can't just be about a breaking news moment. It can't just be about, okay, I published this story. It's like, are you covering this as something systemic in the community? Are you looking at the after effects in this community? Are you covering the community outside of this moment of tragedy? And that's obviously like a very difficult example, but I think it it resonates across the board, right? The the idea that um, to do responsible journalism with a community, whether it's a happy story or a sad story, are you following up to see if that's what the community wanted? That's fantastic. Um, and it actually segues really, really nicely into this uh, very thoughtful question. Uh, from Camila, who asks, how do you prepare people who become news subjects for what comes after a story picks up, especially in underserved communities who may have less media training or exposure and are vulnerable to online hate? I wrote an article about this. It's on Medium. <laughs> and it's called something like, 
How do we include underrepresented people in your work? Uh, it's really lengthy, so um, I apologize. But it starts with making sure that the person assigned to doing that story is the right person assigned to doing that story. Right. So beyond avoiding the parachuting into a community, we have to make sure that the person not necessarily has to be of the same race or the same ethnic group, but the person has to at least know the city, for example, so that when someone makes a reference to a train station, they're not going, oh, so where, what what train station is that? Because what you're doing is you are breaking up, right, the ability for this person to have a real conversation with someone if they don't even know the city well enough, if they don't know the community well enough, right? So it has to start with, did you assign the right person to the story? After that, did the person go and read all of the key people within that community, that ethnic group, that gender group, whatever it is, who have been talking about the topic, right? There are Plenty of people on social media on, on who have their own blogs, who have their own podcasts now that you can go and listen to five people and read their work for the past year and understand how is this community talking about this issue themselves? How are the people who are covering it loosely, right, or commenting on it, approaching it? Let's let that inform your coverage, right? And then there's the issue of you want to make the person feel like they are your partner in this, not that this is an extractive experience where I am going to pull from you the best quotes and the best stories and the best anecdotes. No, you and I together will decide which parts of your story you want to share, which parts of the story are really most relevant. And I will inform you that at every point in this, you can back out. You can tell me not to use something. I will explain to you what on background means, what off the record means, what on the record means. I will explain all of these things to you before I ask you the first question, because I want you to be as empowered to participate as I am in asking you questions about something that could be really deeply personal for you. And so um, it's just really important that we redistribute some of that power because the power will always be off. So everything that we can do to redistribute that power really, really will acknowledge the fact that the person from whom we are receiving is actually the true stakeholder in here. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I'm getting you noticed to please wrap up, unfortunately, because I wish I could talk to you all afternoon. Um, I just want to thank all three of you so much for being here today, for being so present, for being so honest, for bringing your intelligence and your energy. And I think and I hope that the people watching today have really gotten something from this. I know I have. And uh, just thank you so much. Um, anything you want to say in parting? Thank you for the great questions. You really did, did your thing today. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Have a wonderful afternoon.